Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you once again for joining us. Our guest today is no one less than Bruce Rickman. He's the founding executive director of the Prevention Access Campaign, better known as PAC. Bruce is HIV positive and was diagnosed with the virus in 2003, but did not seek medical attention until his health deteriorated in 2010. In 2012, he received news that he could no longer transmit the virus because the viral loads in his blood could not be measured anymore. This revelation inspired the founding of PAC, under which the undetectable equals untransmittable USU campaign launched in 2016. USU refers to the fact that people living with HIV who are on effective treatment and have an undetectable viral load cannot transmit the HIV virus to their sexual partners. Through PAC, Bruce has fought relentlessly to share stigma-shattering evidence proving this revelation. Having worked with brands and celebrities before to market socially driven awareness campaigns in the past, Rickman leveraged this experience to share this life-changing information in the hope that people living with HIV and their partners will live healthy sexual lives free of fear and stigma. Bruce and the USU campaign have received extensive media coverage over the past years. Bruce has also been honored for his work with USU as Healthline's HIV Influencers 2017 Person of the Year and named Plus Magazine number one most amazing HIV positive people of 2018. He also received the 2017 Partnership Award from the National Association of State and Territorial AIDS Directors. So, Bruce Richman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'd like to start this interview with uh, a talk about your personal story. You got diagnosed with HIV in 2003, but it lasted until 2012 before you started taking your antiretroviral medicine. Could you walk us a little bit through the beginning days when you got infected and how you eventually became the activist you are today? When I was diagnosed in 2003, my main concern wasn't, am I going to live? 
because I knew I would live. I knew there were treatments available. I was lucky to have access to treatments, but I didn't want to live because I was afraid of who would, who would love me was the first thing that I thought. Who can I be close to now? Who can I have a relationship with? I have this disease that I could, I could pass on to them and I would never be safe with anyone. And so I, I spiraled into this depression of, of shame and, and, and isolation and started picking up drugs and doing everything I possibly could to kind of escape from the reality. I didn't start taking medication until seven years later. I didn't want to take medication. I didn't want to take a pill that reminded me every day that I had HIV. And I only started taking it when I got sick. And, and then a few years later, I heard that that also meant I couldn't transmit HIV. My doctor told me when I had a scare with a guy that I possibly I thought I, I, I must have infected him. I say infected when it's a heart, when it, for effect, when it yeah. sounds bad, like yeah. to make it sound bad, but not typically else. I, I use it on and off. But then when I heard, when I heard that I couldn't transmit HIV to this guy and, or to anybody, it totally changed my life. I had no idea. I opened up all these possibilities for love, for sex, for conceiving children without that fear of passing on HIV to someone that I loved or wanted to be intimate with or wanted to just have sex with. So it changed everything. But then I started realizing, well, nobody knows this. You know, I was lucky. I have a wonderful doctor who trusted me and was well-connected to the medical establishment and understood the studies really well, had the expertise to be able to draw a conclusion. Just nobody was saying anything. None of the public health information sites I would I did extensive research, research to find out, is there anything, any conclusion out there to back this up? Um, with the exception of the Swiss study at that time, there wasn't was anything. the first in a series of studies. Yeah, the Swiss study was released in 2008. And it, was the, it was the first document, the first statement, consensus statement, that drew a conclusion on, on all the empirical research and, and clinical research. There was some clinical research at that time that showed there were never, there were never any transmissions between people with uh, suppressed viral loads and people who were HIV negative. That Swiss statement was widely criticized, widely criticized. You know, behind closed doors, people were saying, we, well, we agree with this, but it would be a public health disaster if we, if we started telling people this. Now, that's the same thing that I heard Starting, you know, five years later, 2013, 2014, when I started talking to people about this and saying, look, I know you equals you. I'm enjoying it in my life. It's not fair that other people don't know this. This is a basic human right to information about our bodies. This is really important. What I was also finding, which was really sad, but something that people have been experiencing all their lives in the United States and around the world is that Privileged folks like myself were being told, mm -hmm. you know, a white cisgender male with stable health insurance and housing, but people who were already marginalized were not being told. I'd have heads of medical associations or head of a very prominent clinic in Washington, D.C. say to me, I agree 100 percent with you equals you, but we don't tell people that. And the reasons they give us. Absolutely, there's no medical justification for withholding this information. But this is what they would say. Number one, 
they'd say, this will give people a license to have condomless sex, as if we need a license, right? We, who need, and if we need a license, where do we sign up for license, right? So, one, this gives people a license to have condomless sex, and there's already a rise of other STIs. So we don't tell them U equals U because of the risk compensation. And number two is what's called the unsophisticated consumer. I heard that from some of my friends in public health and the U.S. federal health departments. The unsophisticated consumer, that means that if you tell a person living with HIV U equals U, what if they don't understand it? What if they stop taking their medication? They'll become detectable again and transmit HIV. So we better not tell them because they might not understand it. So essentially, number one, we have a right to control the bodies of people living with HIV. We have a right to decide for them whether or not they can have sex with or without condoms. We, can, we have a right to decide for them about their social, sexual, and reproductive lives. And number two, they're too stupid to understand what U equals U means, so we're not going to try to tell them. We're just going to lie to them. Sounds incredibly patronizing, if you ask me. Patronizing, yeah, absolutely. It was. This is a field that is steeped in paternalism and prejudice that has given information providers permission to decide for people living with HIV mm-hmm. rather than give us the information and help us to decide for ourselves or with us. Yeah, but in 2008, when the Swiss study came out and that statement uh, became widely criticized, there were other studies opposite to track. There were the prevention trial networks. There was also Partner One and Partner Two, co-headed by Alison Roger, who I interviewed uh, a couple of weeks ago in London. Now, the evidence today is conclusive. People on treatment with an undetectable viral load cannot transmit the virus. Yet it seems almost impossible to get certain stakeholders to adopt that message. Where do you think that reluctance of adopting that message comes from, especially in the U.S.? Well, two things. First is um, I would say the Swiss, Swiss statement was a statement. It wasn't a study. And that during that time period, it was, a, it was a conclusion. The studies that came out, HP10052, which was presented in 2011, and Partner, which presented, Partner 1, presented in 2014, both of those were published in 2016 in the summer. And then Opposites Attract was published in 2017. I'm sorry, was presented. Those were studies. There weren't conclusions drawn on the studies. It's different. U equals U is based on the aggregate of all the studies. So the conclusion of all the studies, all the way back to the something called Rakai study back in, in the late 90s. So we didn't have, no one was kind of taking care of that important U equals U science, that groundbreaking, but very controversial, uncomfortable science. It didn't have anyone being the steward, or as we say, science doesn't have a publicist. It wasn't being taken care of. If you have all these individual studies that are being promoted independently, then you've got, can have some mixed messages. Some people will draw a conclusion based on one study. Some will draw a conclusion based on a few. We had one journalist who would only, only report on partner and kept saying that Based on partner, there's still a risk because of confidence levels. The U equals U science needed someone to bring it together. And that's what we did with the consensus statement with, with the principal investigators from HPTN 052, Opposites Attract, the partner study, and the author of the Swiss statement. They came together because they saw that their science wasn't getting out to the people it was intending to benefit. It was just sitting on, sitting on the shelves. And their patients 
would know about U equals U because they were good doctors and they would tell their patients. But the aggregate of all their science just wasn't getting out. And it wasn't going to get out unless it was pushed because it was very controversial. And folks just like to keep people with HIV stigmatized and a risk because they think it's the safer thing to do. They think it's safer to kind of give put the separation between HIV positive and HIV negative people because then you won't have any transmission. So you put this little this little line of barrier of fear when in fact that barrier of fear, that stigma against people with HIV is destroying the field. It's the easiest thing to do to polarize, isn't it? It's the easiest thing to do and it seems to be it seems to be rational, but it's not when you step back. It's actually unethical, it's irrational and it's harmful and impedes the field. So going to your, your question about why is there still resistance? Why is it so difficult? Well, we're talking about unlearning over 35 years of fear of HIV and people with HIV. And cognitive dissonance is a real thing. And resistance to change is a real thing. I didn't know how intense that actually was. Really, I think it's most observable and shocking when it's a person with HIV in a position of influence vast influence, we've seen this over and over again, who will not share the information. Our biggest battles in the United States were with our own community, not with the U.S. federal health departments. It was surprising. Everything was turned on its head in this activism. The U.S., it was our own community that fought us and didn't want the message out. And I think that that goes back to several things. One is the trauma that people have experienced um, collective memory. Collective memory of, of believing that we are still a danger and not accepting new science. So that's really that cognitive dissonance. You, you're motivated to, to go back to old ways of thinking when new ways and old ways are contradicting each other. You want to kind of hold on to hold on. Yeah, because that discomfort is too much. Also, you know, some of it is is control and paternalism. The power structure that we fought in the United States and around the world has not just been in the medical and public health establishment. It's also been in the community. There's a what we call AIDS Incorporated in the United States and in the global response of folks who are entrenched in their jobs. It's a big jobs program where you have people who want to maintain power and want to maintain their positions, whether they're representing People with HIV, whether they run community organizations or they're on the various many, many, many circuits of conferences. We go to conferences. You know, This is a field of statements and conferences. Statements, conferences, leadership trainings, the same things over and over again. So you find folks, this new movement came in, and arguably this is the, the largest health and human rights movement in, in history. In three years, in 98 countries, it's changing what it means to live with HIV. This is a testament to the power of people living with HIV when we are screwed over or when we hear something about our, our lives that changes our lives. We want to share it with, with everybody else. And fortunately, I've, I work with people like that. On the other hand, we are still fighting folks some of them living with HIV who will do, are doing nothing. They used to impede the campaign. They used to actually stop the campaign. 
They voted against the campaign for funding. They spread rumors. Really? Spread rumors that this could be, we could be sued. Uh, anyone could be sued if you support prevention access campaign. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was just the opposite of what I thought going into this. I have a bit of feeling as well that the reluctance has to do with the fact that USU is challenging the status quo in ways that the epidemic has never seen before. Yes. Isn't that correct? Yes. I mean, it's, this is a radical, radical departure from, from what we know. And it radically changes the power structure because we're going around the typical ways that public health information is being communicated We went around the, the big agencies and we started getting information out for ourselves. The community created social media campaigns, started marching. We did all the research that we needed and we started sharing it with each other. And fortunately, we found heroes and heroes in this campaign. We found the researchers and the scientists that would stand behind us and legitimize the message. Um, and we pushed and we pushed and we We had to blackmail some organizations. Um, we did. We do things like uh, we'd find moles inside the organization, and we have a find out. They'd give us internal documents of people saying they agree with U equals U, but would we'd sit down in a board meeting with them, and they'd say, "Oh, we're we're not ready to say this," and we said, "We're not ready. We have these documents that are showing you agree with this, and if you don't make a public statement on Friday." This will be all over the media that X organization is lying about people with HIV. X organization is not only hurting people with HIV, risking their life, putting their lives at risk, but is impeding progress to end the epidemic. So that actually three major agencies move forward because of our moles in the agencies that we found. And if we didn't find these people, they were destroying the campaign. Destroying the moles. You mean, you mean. No, the moles were getting us information that, ah, okay. that these yeah. big agencies knew already. And they gave us internal documents that the agencies okay, knew this, that. but weren't ready to say it because of what I was saying earlier, mostly because of the public health reasons on a population level. What would happen when you get this message out? Would people understand it? Would People think that they're undetectable when they're not undetectable. One head of a big foundation in the United States, the first thing he said to, to me and my colleague, this is great for people with HIV. This is wonderful for people who have families and have sex and babies and stigma, reduce stigma, increase treatment adherence and all these things, better engagement and care now. The first thing he said was, how do we protect HIV negative people? from someone who's positive and thinks they're undetectable or from someone who's going to lie and say they're undetectable. Exactly. Thinking, yeah. My veins started going like this and my colleague looked at me and said, don't, 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 don't. I was about to, you know, rip into him. But we just had a rational conversation. We faced the seraphobia. We faced it. And we knew what kind of beast we were dealing with. I was really glad that he was straightforward with us. I appreciate people being direct in this field rather than causing problems. At least there's a possibility to get the correct information across. To right, them. right. One thing that now that U equals U is really rolling along and we have the greatest minds in the field, like, like Dr. Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Allison Roger behind this. And, and I do think that the U.S. is going to move forward. We have a big meeting at the United States Conference on AIDS next week. I think that it's going, U.S. is going to come and join the rest of the world and getting this out. What concerns me and is more difficult to address, but we have to, is why did these 
agencies sit on their hands? And, and why did some of them proactively try to stop the message from going out? And why did the leaders who claim to represent us try to push back on this message and were not willing to share the message with our own communities? You know, that's, those people are still there and they're still making decisions about our lives. And that's not leadership. Fortunately, in this campaign, we've seen real leadership. We've seen people who were the first in their country to step up and say, we can't transmit to you. Can you imagine being like if someone in Northern Ireland was the first in his country, Andrew? He said, uh, I'm gay, I'm HIV positive, and I can't transmit HIV to you. Like, he could be killed just for being gay. But to be gay, HIV positive, and then come out with this radical information, I mean, that's, that's a hero. In the United States, we saw the, the head of New York City's Division of Age standing up first in the world, first city in the world, to say U equals U in the summer of 2016. He signed on and he had his public health department sign on. That's vision. I mean, this is a time when nobody was saying it. You know, Terrence Higgins Trust in the UK was, was on board and um, is really a world leader in this message. But we've, we found a lot of the heroes that should be leading this global response to HIV. The laggards, the ones who lacked courage, the ones who clinged to the status quo, the ones who feared innovation, feared newcomers and pushed back on anything that challenged their power, it's time for them to go. You have high hopes for the U.S., but USU could also mean a turning point for countries where HIV prevalence is very high. How do, what challenges do you see in this regard? Because getting the message across to the African continent, for example, may be far more challenging than, than it is at home. Well, in, the, in places in, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the work is, is, is much better than the United States. In Zambia, for instance, the president actually has a national U equals U rollout plan signed on to launch their campaign in 10 provinces a couple months ago with U equals U activists in Zambia. It's funded by PEPFAR in cooperation with the CDC in Zambia. So we're seeing some really, really fascinating, effective rollouts in other parts of the world. But, you know, there's the progress toward 90-90-90 in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa is far greater than in the United States. I mean, the viral suppression rates in the United, in, in the U.S. are, we don't, we are dismal. I mean, we have about half of the people, of one million people living with HIV in the United States are not on treatment and not in care. I mean, 1.1 million U.S. adults live with HIV in, in, in your country. Yeah. It's 51% are undetectable. And if you further CDC data show that in 2014, about 470,000 African-Americans were living with HIV, only 43% were um, undetectable, had suppressed their viral load. Now, considering the profound advances in HIV treatment and medicine, many of us are wondering why uh, so many, I mean, so many members of our community still struggle with viral suppression. So what is your uh, take on this? I'll give you the politically correct answer. (laughs) It's not a politically correct answer. It's, I'm going to give you the real answer. This is an unpopular opinion. And I believe that one of the major reasons that we have such poor viral suppression in the United States is our own community organizations that have become AIDS Incorporated. First of all, anyone can get treatment. Treatment is available in the United States, regardless of your income, but there are barriers to getting treatment 
that need to be addressed. These are structural barriers, social determinants of health, stigma, racism, poverty, unemployment, homelessness. So there's all kinds of barriers to getting treatment. Now, if you look at other parts of the world that experience similar barriers to treatment, there's one thing that they're doing better is they have a community of people living with HIV. They have organizations that support them, that are compassionate, they have peer outreach programs, they have all sorts of ways to connect people living with HIV, newly diagnosed people with a support system. And that we know that that sense of community and that sense of connectedness is essential to deal with, to address mental health issues, to help people get engaged in care, to find the services that they need because so many people at the local level don't have that kind of support. But if we had a national entity that was highly visible and it's easy to do that now through, you know, through uh, the internet and through social media, then folks would have a place to go. And I think that we would see people be able to overcome mental health issues in many ways to not feel so alone when you're diagnosed. And I think we would see an increase, not a huge dramatic increase, but we'd see an increase in folks who are staying, you know, choosing to take uh, their medication and stay in care and really fighting to get to undetectable. Um, so I think that one is, is that, that sense of community that we need. And then number two is if people don't know the benefits of treatment, then why would they go on it? You know, I didn't go on treatment for seven years because I didn't care that much about my health. I didn't care about myself, but I would have gone on treatment immediately if I had known that I wouldn't be infectious anymore to anybody. You know, I was, I felt like a walking infection. I felt like a disease vector that brought me down. That led me to drugs that led me to depression. And I think that's happening in many parts of the country. So number one, we need a better sense of community and we have many examples, whether it's in the UK or Ireland or Vietnam or Nigeria or New Zealand of very strong national organizations and regional chapters for people with HIV to embrace us and to hold us in this. Yeah. And number two, we need to give people the clear information about treatment. I mean, how the hell do we expect? Why would we ever expect people to go on treatment if we're not telling them the full benefits of treatment? It's that simple. And if we hide it on page four in some paragraph or we water it down, they're not going to see it. We need to make it clear. We need treatment to save our lives. And some of us like me didn't care about that. That wasn't our first priority because we were sort of, but there's also another amazing benefit to treatment. And that is you can have sex. You can love, you can have relationships, you can conceive children without any fear of passing on this disease that has brought you down so much. You are free, you know? We have to tell people that, and we are not in the United States. But we will, believe me, we will. We have to. We absolutely have to. For people with HIV, for our lives, because it's the right thing to do, and it is our time, and we deserve this, and to get to the end of the epidemic. To address the goals in the new end, end the epidemic plan, we must say it loud and clear. No more hiding it. None of this lacking courage. I mean, this is not business as usual. Business as usual is what we have. 90% of this field is business as usual in the United States. That is not going to get us to the end of the epidemic. 
and is certainly not representing people with HIV because someone like me had to come into the field to do this. I wasn't in the field. If this business as usual was representing people with HIV, this would have been done already. There would have been a U equals U consensus statement before I came in or before my co you know, colleagues and I. You know, we need new leadership. We need innovation. And we need it now. We need it now. But let me tell you, though, I need to be very clear. AIDS Incorporated, the establishment, is fierce in the United States. Fierce. There are so many good people that have been run out of this field because of the way that they have been attacked or undermined, not promoted, not recognized. AIDS Incorporated has to be dismantled in the United States in order to end the epidemic. There has to be new leadership that welcomes innovation, that welcomes change like U equals U. And it's not hard to see who didn't welcome U equals U and who still isn't. Like right now, go to the websites of all the national organizations. See who's saying anything. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised. Go to all of everything that, and, and the organizations that represent us as well. Is this a priority to tell people with HIV? Or is it the same old recycled rhetoric that people have up there? And the same things that we already know. Check it out. I'm actually very happy that you're so passionate and so outspoken about the topic, Bruce. And I think the message is extremely clear. There is one thing I want to ask you in regards to the viral suppression that is a little over 50%. Yeah. Do you think there is a looming danger that in the USU message that is going to stigmatize that people that have not yet reached the viral suppression? Because that's what some people also say. Yes, we always... We always talk about viral load does not equal value, and that's a phrase that was created by some activists in Seattle um, that we work with. It's really important in our, our, our communications to be conscious. So this is all about conscious communications that you know people living with HIV, regardless of their viral load, are not a danger, and that all of us can have hot, safer sex. I mean, there's still there's condoms in some parts of the world. There's prep, so we all can have safe sex. No one living with HIV is a danger. We're not defined by our viral load tests or by our, our labs. And I think that, you know, what we've been hearing from folks who have detectable viral loads or are struggling is many of them are actually happy about the news. They're happy that this is lifting up the community and they see this as aspirational. Often uh, when you talk to folks who are saying that, they're, they're not detectable. They're saying it on behalf of folks who are detectable because they're concerned. But if you actually talk to people who have detectable viral loads, we've been hearing more and more that, you know, they hope to get there, you know, that um, and they're happy that this could be a possibility for, for the community. And we also need to use U equals U as a public health argument for Absolutely. access to better treatments and services and care to help people get to undetectable so that we can address that third U, un unequal or universal. And that's one thing that we can do better. We're seeing excellent multilateral agencies and in global organizations like Linkages and HealthGap that are using U equals U as the argument to increase access to treatment and better diagnostics and viral load testing, not just to save people's lives, which is the number one priority, but also to prevent the spread of the epidemic in, in various countries. Now, they're, they're, we're seeing that they're doing a really good job 
Again, sadly, it's talking about my own country. And this is not a grass that is always greener. This is, we have it all documented. We have a PowerPoint about all this stuff. Okay. In the United States, we have the hundreds of activists were just told to go to Capitol Hill to advocate increased funding for HIV treatment and care to get us to viral suppression. The argument they used is legitimate and valid, and I believe it. This is to save our lives and for the well-being of people living with HIV. What I learned in the field is not everybody feels that way about the well-being of, not everybody cares about the well-being of people with HIV. They care about negative people, but so now we have the argument, we need increased funding for treatment and care for our lives, for the well-being of people with HIV. And if you get us that treatment and care, it gets undetectable. We won't transmit HIV and that will get us to the end of the epidemic. So you have to link increased funding and tr- for treatment and care to ending the epidemic. Get people with HIV undetectable and you'll stop new transmissions, get us to the end of the epidemic. They weren't even told to say that. So in my view, that was a waste, a complete waste and unconscionable. The public health argument is what policymakers are going to perk up to. Absolutely. They want to end the epidemic. If they don't know, they're just going to focus on ah, for the lives of those people. And then you got the, the racism, the transphobia, the classism, the homophobia that comes in. And that's who people living with HIV are. That's who we are. We are the most marginalized communities in the world. And so it's, it's no wonder that policymakers aren't going to pay so much attention to us you know, and to, to our lives, but they will pay attention to prevention. Now, the activists, now I should say the feds, as you can see in the end, the epidemic plan, getting to viral suppression, increasing access to treatment is a major priority. So we already know that that's built in. So I don't think in terms of the activists not saying that we need increased funding for access to treatment. It, I think the, the feds are already moving in that direction, but it, it, you just wonder why. Why weren't they told? Why wasn't that the main bullet point out of 18 pages of policy briefs? Why was it mentioned twice out of 18 pages? But increasing funding is, is, is critical and getting, getting people on treatment as well. But what about stigma itself? I interviewed Dr. Fauci yesterday and he said that stigma is probably the biggest threat to the actual well-being of people living with HIV. In your own words, how would you describe stigma in the U.S. specifically? What, what does stigma mean to you? Yeah, I had very bad experiences with stigma, even during the campaign itself. So to feel like a danger and to be accused of lying about something, about lying about yourself, wanting to be close to someone and intimate with someone, and then being accused of of lying to get close, of lying, manipulating to have sex with them or to, 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 to be close to them is, it cuts deep. And I had experiences before the campaign, actually. I remember uh, I was just starting, just getting it ramped up and talking to the researchers. And, and this guy, he was like a human rights lawyer. He was a, he was a yoga teacher. He seemed so liberal and radical and like open-minded and we went out to dinner and I told him and I told him that, look, I'm working on this, you know, bringing this research together that proves that I can't transmit to you. And I, I showed him all the research, I had everything on my phone. And he was like, I, I'm OK with that. I've just never been with anyone who is HIV positive. And I was like, well, you probably have. 
you don't know it, but you know. Yeah, yeah. So we went home and you know started to fool around, and he was shaking. He was like like clearly afraid of me, you know. And I just and he was like, it's going to take me time to do. That. I said, you're you're afraid, you're shaking. What's up? And he said, it's going to take time, and and I don't I don't want to have to educate somebody at, at, at this point, but I did find someone, um, after, you know, 12 years of, of, of being alone really because of the shame of HIV and not feeling, but what I really, I start to internalize you equals you. I started to really believe it. I found someone and about it, you know, 2016, when we were issuing the consensus statement, his friend, his best friend told him that I was putting him at risk and he was concerned because the CDC wasn't saying what I was saying and that, you know, my boyfriend at the time should go on prep. And, uh, and my boyfriend, you know, kind of, you know, asked me about it and asked for the research. And I just remember it, it sent me right back 10 years back to that spiral of shame and feeling not trusted and feeling like a, a deceptive person. And, and I, I remember it was like, I cried for two days. I was so, and, and the irony of it, there were a lot of those situations actually of me. I'm out there talking about the campaign, talking about sex without fear and love without fear, but my own life wasn't reflecting that. And it actually has not been that a lot of that. So I, I just, relish in the fact that I'm bringing that to others. And ultimately I think that will be something that I'll, I'll have myself, you know, yeah. so that but this is an ironic story. And then in terms of other people, I mean, people had it far worse than, than I've ever experienced. I mean, there are people, I know someone just recently was kicked out of her apartment. She and her husband both living with HIV and she doesn't have the money to go through the legal recourse, you know, the proceedings, legal proceedings. There are advocates that we work with that have deep scars in their arms and in their, in their wrists from uh, attempted suicides. There are so many people that aren't alive right now, whether it's due to suicide or murder, especially trans women and, and sex workers, because they were perceived as dangerous because of the stigma associated with, with them as being people with HIV. It, stigma affects everything. It affects whether someone can have a bottle of pills in their home. You know, if they're afraid someone will find out, it affects whether someone's going to go to the clinic and get tested or get their labs done. You know, that internal stigma affects whether people want to take their medication. You know, every time I saw that pill, I was reminded of HIV. So I didn't want to take my medicine for seven years. So we have to address stigma and U equals U completely tears apart the stigma that we've been living with and dying from for decades. Now, I mean, if I look, I, I listen to your stories with, with stigma. Honestly, I've never really had to experience stigma the way you describe it. Only once there was a, there was a point where um, a girl stopped talking to me because of, of my condition, I think. Maybe it was even something else, I don't really know, because she just stopped talking to me. But apart from that, I've never had one person denying me any conversation or looking at me differently because of my HIV-positive status, which has, for me, been an amazing, uplifting experience to, 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 to live by. But I've, also, I've always felt as well the way you bring the message to other people 
if I go to someone and, and I'm positive and I'm, I stand in my essence and I, I, I can really say like, look, this is what I have. And I can explain it in a normal setting that people immediately take it a different way. Instead, if when you're like sad or you would really like make it sound as this is a catastrophe, then all of a sudden you make people afraid of the condition as well. Is that something that you've experienced as well? Or? Because I'm trying to figure out why certain people go into shock, as you well, said. I think, with, it's a gay, I think the gay community is a difference between gays and, and particularly attached to stigmatizing people living with HIV because yeah. it's not just because we have the disease that the gay community has been terrified of since the 80s. That's definitely a big part of it, but it's also it's natural for people to organize in classes and scapegoat and to feel superior. And so you have, I'm HIV negative, I'm HIV positive, or now it's neg on prep, you know, and all the, all these, these apps, you know, you can have the, the premium label now. And I think that particularly, you know, in the gay community, there's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in the, in, on the apps. And there's a lot of that in the real world of kind of wanting to be better than, you know, and, and, and kind of showing off and scapegoating. So it's, I think it's particularly bad, and that, that's why we need to really use the apps to reach the gay community, use the apps as a root a channel of, of information. As a last question, I'd like to uh, um, elaborate a little bit on the Prevention Access Campaign, which has been existing three years. This campaign has gone global very quickly. What is the future holding for you, and how do you see mean, PAC coming across in the next couple of years? Well, in two th- we launched the organization in 2015, and then we launched the campaign in the summer of 2016. So in three years, it's been explosive, unprecedented growth for any social justice movement. It's, it's just amazing. And the community of people around the world who are driving this message forward is extraordinary. I have never met such brilliant, courageous compassionate, creative people who are really pioneers. And this is still a new message in so many, so many parts of the world. This is on every continent except for Antarctica. I mean, this is in almost all of the EECA countries now. It's everywhere. And this next, you know, the first phase of the Prevention Access Campaign was to clarify that this is indeed true. U equals U is true. And the way we did that was through the consensus statement. Yeah. Initially, that, that was the jumping point. And then we had an advocacy video. And it was really all about getting influencers to sign on and pushing influence. Now, now it's all about distributing the message. And it's about helping our partners, working with our partners. So really being a support to them as they integrate U equals U into their clinical work, their communications work, and, and their policy work around the world. That's a lot of fun. Because then I get to meet, I get to meet the heroes. I get to meet so many from all different backgrounds and countries and, and, and languages. And we're all in it together. So PAC is the hub and PAC is going to you know, continue to, to support them and to kind of be on the cutting edge to make the, make sure this message is broadcast loud and clear. So how do you feel as an activist today? Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm so proud of, of, of these people. I'm so proud. Like I see their faces all the time, like every day. <laughs> every day I wake up and see this, this, beautiful collage of of the faces of the activists and 
the researchers, public health officials, the journalists, all these people um, that that came together to do this. So I couldn't be more proud and fulfilled. It's unlike anything I could have ever imagined being a part of. And the feeling of gratitude is, it's bliss. It's just total, total. And then I get angry as well (laughs) because there's still a lot of work to do. I get back to the, okay, there's still a lot of work to do, but that they lift me up. Well, your vulnerability is touching, Bruce. I mean, as a last message to people living with HIV any, in any part of the world, what is, what is that you would like to tell them? Number one, none of us is a danger. And we all need to continue to come together to fight. This is a struggle for truth. Got to get up. We've got to stand up. Even if it's just a like and a repost on social media, we've got to get the the message out so that everybody knows and that everyone has the opportunity to benefit from you equals you. So join us. I'll see you on, on social media. Let's get the message out. You equals you all over the world. Bruce Richmond, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. So yes, a big, big thank you to Bruce Rickman for coming on this podcast and for sharing so openly and passionately about himself and the impact of USU on people living with HIV today. This was an amazing interaction with the person who has been the driving force behind getting the message of probably one of the most significant medical breakthroughs in recent history known to as many people as possible around the world. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel, where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach, and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, And let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels and on our website www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you and so does the world. Thank you so much.